Welcome to the Future of Supply Chain. Each episode, we bring together leaders across the supply chain space to discuss the role of technology and business model innovation on the future of supply chain. The Future of Supply Chain podcast is presented by Dynamo. Dynamo is a pre-seed and seed stage supply chain investor. To learn more about Dynamo and this show, head over to www.dynamo.vc slash podcasts or subscribe on the platform of your choice. Now let's get into the show. Here's our host, Santosh Sankar. Hey, ladies and gents, welcome back to the Future Supply Chain Podcast. I'm your host, Santosh Sankar. And joining me today is Mike Fitzgerald, VP of Operations at Pure Storage. Welcome, Mike. Oh, thank you, Santosh. And, and uh, nice to be here. It's a pleasure. And I thank you for the opportunity to speak with you. Absolutely. And uh, I'm excited to dig into all things around storage supply chain. And prior to this, we were joking around as to how more people now are aware and acknowledge that supply chain (laughs) exists. So I'm excited to jump into that. But I know Pure Storage from being a public equities analyst and following storage providers in a previous life. But I'd love for you to share the 90-second skinny on Pure with our listeners here. Oh, yeah. Well, yeah, Pure Storage is uh, an absolutely, one, uh, a great company to work for. We're, we're in the, the highly differentiated all-flash array marketplace for storage, as you're aware. We've had a great growth growth pattern over the last 10, 11 years. We're currently right around uh, a $2 billion a year company. When I came in a couple of years ago, we were at about 1.5. So we've had a, a good growth pattern, even during the, uh, the pandemic. We've got an expansion of our product line over the last several years. At one point in time, we were a single single product type of a company, and we've expanded into multi-products, including not only hardware, but software. And one of our latest endeavors has been providing what we call Pure as a Service, which is a consumption-based model for storage. And we're very proud of that. And it actually hit at the right time and was, was leveraged heavily by our customer base during the pandemic. So before we jump into the supply chain organization you lead and have designed, I'd be curious, what's the Mike Fitzgerald story? How did you end up at Pure, but also in and around the world of supply chain? Yeah, yeah, sure. Ironically, Santosh, my undergrad uh, degree is in production and operations management. So I'm I'm one of the few that probably has yeah. worked in their... <laughs> undergrad <laughs> major for his entire career. When I got out of school, I spent a couple of years in medical devices, running a production floor, rolling my sleeves up and, and really get to know what production is all about. After that, I left the medical devices and went in the defense industry uh, for around 10 years. And interestingly enough, when I first got there, we were doing MRP by hand. There was no automation. So I spent quite a bit of time and we went through an ERP transition and actually did start using MRP. But during my time there, I ran manufacturing, I uh, did production scheduling, program management, and also did some factory transitions from uh, the U.S. into Mexico during the Maquiladora era. So it gave me a good feel for not only the broad base of supply chain and manufacturing, but but also what it took to move factories around the globe, which paid off in a later life. Following that, I spent 10 years in the high-tech storage industry working for EMC. I ran new products there, ran supply chain, and, and I, that was when I really dove deep into what we call the lean enterprise and implemented 
not only lean manufacturing, but also a lean supply chain from, from the factory all the way back into the second and third tier of the supply chain. And following that, I moved into uh, my career with Lenovo and I spent around 11 years at Lenovo. That was a fun ride. When I went there, they were now making three or four million units a quarter. When I left, making 16 million units a quarter. I think now they're up in the in the mid-20s. And one of my jobs there was uh, uh, manufacturing strategy and scaling the operations. Great ride opening factories around the globe in South America, in different parts of China, in Mexico, in the U.S., Learned a lot, uh, a lot more about uh, opening factories and certainly how the supply chain worked. Ran supply chain operations also while I was there. Had their all of their NPI at one point in time. Did a stint with Quality, and when I right before I left there, I was running their business unit operations. And then I found Pure, and I'd, I'd seen Pure from afar when when I was at, at Lenovo. I was very familiar with their product set. And when I interviewed, I fell in love with the company, uh, not just the company, but, but the leadership team. I knew of their reputation in the industry, and I knew that their products were outstanding. But once I got to know the culture, it was, uh, it was a no-brainer. I, I, obviously, I moved from a roughly $50 billion a year company to a $2 billion a year company. That was my intent. Mm-hmm. I wanted to go smaller because for many reasons, it was nice to have a team in the same geo and communications were quick. One of the things about Pure is uh, we're a nimble, fast, and agile company. I can't necessarily say that about 40 or $50 billion behemoths, <laughs> but, and, it's, and it's paid off in my supply chain side of the business in relationship to how, how quickly we can react to situations that need act, action and activity. So what's your total charge responsibility today? day-to-day as VP of Ops at Pure? I've got all of the supply chain, the the standard planning, purchasing, sourcing, all of the factories. I will say we're we're a totally outsourced factory environment, but I've got a a team of people, a supply chain execution team that basically either runs the factories from, from afar. And over the last 18 months, we've actually put a lot of people into the factories factory environment because we could no longer parachute them in via plane. I've also got the uh, supply chain operations in relationship to you know, quality engineering, manufacturing engineering, and I've got a, a small business intelligence team. I've got logistics, I've got warehousing, fulfillment, probably the, the end-to-end supply chain gamut would be the best way to respond. And kind of in order to level set uh, the conversation, like what does the flow of goods look like in pure supply chain or just even broadly, like when you're talking about storage supply chains or electronic supply chains? Well, we, 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 we source our componentry from the same places, most high tech companies all around the globe. We've continued to try to emphasize multi-sourcing, not just in the Far East, but in other areas of the world. But we bring the componentry into what we call a level six or sub-assembly houses, build the sub-assemblies, ship those into our level 10 facilities, which is finished goods fulfillment. We've got a few of those in North America and one in Eastern Europe. And our sub-assembly houses are in North America, Europe, and in the Far East. 
And you mentioned some of the changes you had to make with regards to having personnel within the factories you contract with. But it's, I think, of no surprise to our listeners, as well as I would say even the general population, that hardware supply chains have faced significant headwinds over the last 18, 24 months. Kind of, I'd love to hear kind of state of the nation from your viewpoint and kind of how you see this outlook either intensifying further or perhaps having some type of relief as we head into year-end 21 and uh, gear up for a new year in 22. Yeah, I, I think it's probably an understatement about the last 18 months. Uh, a little bit of background. When I first came into Pure, my boss, Charlie Giancarlo, was very clear about building out a supply chain for the future that could scale and that uh, had risk mitigation uh, built into it as well. And, and just a little bit more background on the pure supply chain. I inherited the group from employee number one in operations. He built the, the entire group up to roughly around 100 people. Did a great job, something I could have never done. But, but it wasn't built for scale. It was, it was a startup supply chain that, that had, had been put together to make sure that we could continue to build and ship product. But the, the, the strategy was clear that was given to me was put this into a scalable operation. So when I came in, clearly defined a strategy that we were going to move from the startup mentality to scale. And one of the things we decided to do there was design a responsive supply chain and, and also make sure that we had a risk mitigated nodal layout. And so we moved some of our nodes into North America. The, the bulk of our customer shipments are in the Americas, but we were still doing a lot of the sub-assembly work out of the Far East. And for many reasons, which I'm sure you're aware, not only with the tariffs, but also from a logistics perspective, it only made sense for us to move closer and do some level of nearshoring for our, for our sub-assembly operations. So we moved into into the Mexican operations. We, we expanded our capabilities in Eastern Europe. And a lot of that was done on, on a risk mitigation tactic and, and, and strategy. And fortunately, I'll, I'll be honest, Santosh, we didn't, we didn't build the supply chain for a pandemic. This is actually my first pandemic. <laughs> uh, we built the supply chain to manage risk and to make sure that we had disaster recovery, business continuity, and the ability to, to, to surge when necessary, because as you know, Pure has been growing at, at a clip of you know 20% plus a year. We wanted to be able to support that and then more. It's funny you joked that it's your first pandemic, but as I kind of go through your body of experience, there have been other disruptions like the Fukushima disaster that yeah. certainly yeah. roiled supply chains. What, what are kind of some lessons you've kind of brought with you or perhaps some people would say scars and kind of precautionary behaviors that you've kind of carried with you here from those prior events. Yeah. And that to connect the dots, a lot of the strategic initiatives that we drive and have been driving were built off of, I lived through the Thailand floods. I lived through the, to your point, the tsunamis, swine flu. I was opening a factory in Monterey, Mexico when swine flu hit. That kind of slowed us down a bit. I was actually fortunate enough to uh, get swine flu, 
a variant flu in, in, in South China. But, but, but to all of that, what I learned was you must prepare as if something bad will happen and you know how you're going to act when it does. So a lot of our risk mitigation tactics were multiple sourcing, multiple factory sites. As I said, we, we, we built two sub-assembly sites, which was extremely beneficial in the onset of COVID because our factory site in, in South China was shut down. So we had the whole global demand coming out of our site in North America. But through those learnings, we, we defined and devised a manufacturing footprint that lent itself to being able to move product demand and product supply back and forth when and if necessary. And I've just recently expanded upon that, or we've just recently expanded upon that. And we, we've expanded our factory site in, in the Czech Republic to be able to build all products and to be able to do stretch supply plans in case there were any issues, let's say like maybe an ice storm in Austin. So I'm going to kind of shift uh, gears a little bit. And th- there's a few topics around supply chain technology I'd love your thoughts on. And the first one is visibility. I feel like it's a perennial problem. When I first got involved in supply chain, I remember talking to a industry leader who at that point had probably spent about 30 years in industry. And he told me at conferences, they were talking about visibility when he was first year out of his undergraduate program. Yeah. And I'd love kind of your take on visibility and supply chain technology addressing that problem or opportunity, however you see it. Yeah. Well, from a visibility perspective, one of the things that we focus on, I referenced our business intelligence team that we've got. And one of the things that we focused on is links into our supply chain to make sure we've got the level of visibility. But I, but I wouldn't overemphasize that it's only electronic. We do have a lot of electronic uh, visibility, but it's a lot of it's also a word of mouth and voice. Every day, especially in this pandemic uh, environment, we meet with our key suppliers, our, our, our manufacturing plants, to make sure that we're up to speed because things are changing so quickly. But if we back away from that and talk about visibility as a whole, one of the things we've done is made sure that we've got clarity of what is available, available to ship, available to promise in our factory sites. We also make sure that our factory sites have that same level of visibility into their supply chain nodes. And so we built out that capability. And then on the demand prediction side, one of the things that we've done is we've gone from what I would say that startup mentality of a spreadsheet-based demand planning and supply planning operation into leveraging AI, machine learning. We're taking that level of data and trying to make sure we've got visibility projected out, but also to your point, visibility going backwards into the supply chain. And right now, it's never been more imperative for us to be able to keep our thumb on the pulse of what's available in the marketplace, especially with the significant shortages that we're seeing and with the lead times that are in some cases expanding upwards to 75 weeks. And so it's interesting because you you break down visibility into kind of supply visibility, inventory visibility. So that's raw materials, work in process, finished goods. But there's also the visibility 
oriented in and around goods in transit as well. And that's kind of a perennial thing that we've had prior guests speak to that visibility means a lot of different things and you have to be mindful of context around the problem you're trying to solve. Yeah. And on that same note, Santosh, one of the things that we've been driving of this year, it's a strategic initiative within our group is, is tighter alignment with our customers and trying to create a level of visibility of their needs and demands. And from a high tech perspective, that's not always been the case. You get into the retail industry, it's a little bit easier for that to, to be linked into an electronic system. But from a high tech perspective, one of the things we're trying to do, especially with what I would call our larger customers, is create that level of linkage between my team and their team, the, the, the team that's the supply chain that we're shipping into. Think of service providers and, and global integration companies, as well as the end customer making sure we understand what their needs are going forward, especially once again in this environment, because the the level of communication or the need for the level of communication has never been higher, not only from a physical perspective, but from an electronic perspective. So my second um, topic is around sourcing. And it's interesting how you laid out the supply chain at Pure and some of those changes that you've navigated both at Pure as well as in, in your prior life. You know, w- what opportunities exist in this environment to make supply chains more resilient, or as I like to call it, more anti-fragile, so actually improving under stress <laughs> and over rolling periods of time? Yeah, well, I, 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 it's inherent to the response of supply chain design as a level of buffering I think many of us have lived in environments where just in time and what I would call the efficient supply chain has overshadowed the responsive supply chain in many ways. But I think there's been a uh, an awakening, and this is my opinion, that highly efficient supply chains are great when everything is going well, but break down quickly when everything starts to take a turn to the south. And I think one of the things that we're seeing, certainly in the high-tech industry, is a realization that leaning out the supply chain to where there's very little excess or buffering or any level of what I would call disruption protection, I think is starting to be replaced by risk mitigation or or more emphasis on risk mitigation, buffering, multi-sourcing, and uh, making sure that you've got multi-geo sourcing as well as, as multi-sourcing, not just two different suppliers, but suppliers that are in different geos in case things like what's recently happened. But, I mean, the, the perfect situation, you know, Malaysia shuts down, Thailand shuts down, Vietnam shuts down, a lot of packaging operations for different electronic componentry is done in those locations. And if that's your sole source of supply, you you run out of runway pretty quick in relationship to meeting customer demands. Hmm. So the one concept you have, Mike, is around this concept of no-fail supply chain design. It's one of your MOs. Tell us more about that. One of the things that we try to make sure we understand is prepare for the worst and plan for the best. And so it's kind of back to what I had talked about earlier is uh, assume that something's going to go wrong and make sure that you've got the capabilities 
to respond and react quickly to whatever does go wrong with the with the intent to create invisibility to the supplier, I mean, to the customers and or the fulfillment operations. So we intentionally in our strategy setting, we plan out scenarios. We, we, we have the ability to ship product if our systems go totally down to the ground. We, we have figured out a way to do it by paper. Not that we'd ever want to do that, but if for some reason we lose power, we want to be able to continue shipping because the customer you know, deserves that. But so on that same note, a lot of the focus is on understand what scenario planning you need to do, what could go wrong from a disaster uh, recovery type of perspective and make sure that you've got plans in place and not plans that recover in six months or nine months, but plans that recover in days and weeks. And does there, is there like a kind of culture mentality that your team needs to embrace? Because on one side, you want them to be innovative, forward-thinking, but then there's also the other side where, hey, like worst comes to worst, we can still do things the old school way. <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, no, you're absolutely right. And this is where I talked a little bit about the balance between electronic and physical. But to that point, one of the things that we have, the, the mantra right now in our team is, availability is number one. There's most of us have worked our careers with, with trying to, you know, balance the three legs of the stool of cost quality and delivery. But in this pandemic environment, it's all about availability and making sure that you've got product early on in the pandemic. I can't tell you how many times we had customers call up on a Friday night, needing equipment delivered on a Saturday, installed on a Sunday so that they could, resume operations on a Monday with with twice the demand on their systems that they'd had the week before. And we I'm 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 happy to say we were able to to supply the product and and our product is very easy to use and install. So we were able to to fulfill the needs of the, the customers in that in that aspect or in that situation. But a lot of it is making sure that you you understand what are the potential constraints and that you've got a plan in place to eliminate those constraints when needed. And kind of thinking of the constraints that we've faced over the last couple of years now in this sector, are you seeing an active effort or evaluation around kind of nearshoring some of this manufacturing capability? You, you'd mentioned facilities in Mexico previously. Like, is this something that, that's actually happening? Because depending on the headlines and, and the week we're in, one might think that we're at the cusp of this like renaissance in and around manufacturing in North America. And I'm not quite sure that's entirely true. I, I think that never has the the winds of change been blowing stronger in that aspect. Nearshoring has been talked about, you know, for a couple of decades. But I think that the, the level of seriousness has really gone way. I mean, let's look at the chip market as, as an example. We're now talking about TSMC, Intel, the, the level of investment that they're going to be putting into U.S. sites as well as European sites has never been higher. So I think we are going to, especially especially in the high-tech environment, which is where I've spent most of my career, I, I can't say that this is going to be true from a retail perspective, but when you get into the supply chains that demand responsiveness, 
which I think the high-tech environment does, you will continue to see a level of nearshoring, onshoring. I think that logistics, uh, we've all learned a lot on logistics over the last 18 months as well. The the way the costs fluctuate, the the availability of lift, the constraints, even even down to on the tarmac, have, have drastically exhibited the need for If you can minimize the need to put stuff on a plane or put stuff on a boat, you're much better off. So I always feel much more comfortable knowing that I'm putting product on a truck and it's going to go 11 or 12 hours and be at the factory site for incorporation and finished good versus having to figure out how to put it on a boat, have it float for five to six weeks Mm. and sit outside of a harbor for another month until it can be unloaded. (laughs) Indeed, indeed. And as we kind of wrap up here, like how important is startup collaboration uh-huh. and working with startups as you think about the uh, future of your supply chain organization, as well as just kind of improving it quarter to quarter? Yeah, well, obviously we sit in Silicon Valley, so we're, we're in a hotbed. There are several people on our team that have come out of that environment. So we continue to leverage, we continue to search and, and take advantage wherever possible in startup type of operations or, or capabilities or product sets that we can we can leverage. And I think that if you were to look at it 20 years ago versus where it is today, it's night and day. People are tailoring systems to the needs of industries versus the, the needs of many. And I think that's that's only going to increase not only the amount of communication and collaboration, but also the effectiveness and the efficiency of how, how supply chains are run. And I think some of the products that I've seen, some of that I've read about are absolutely spot on and doing just that. And then kind of hand in hand with that and, and my final question, Mike, what are you excited about as you think about the future supply chain? Where's there opportunity that some of these founders listening to us might spend time in and around. And it's some of it's the age old collaboration. And if I look through the high tech lens, which I've continued to do, a highly collaborative, responsive supply chain that's enabled by lean decision making, lean decision making, meaning that it doesn't take a long time and you're focusing on the critical few to make the, the correct decision. The business intelligence systems that are being provided enable that. So I think the level of collaboration will continue to go up. I think we need nodes between suppliers and customers to get tighter linked physically and electronically, as I referenced earlier. And I think that that will be a a huge boon to uh, supply chain efficiency and effectiveness. And I also think the we're in the golden age of being able to take information slash data and leverage it for decision-making going forward in a very rapid, at a very rapid pace. Awesome. Well, with that, Mike, we certainly covered a lot of ground here, but I think we've learned a lot about a supply chain that I think has been in the forefront uh, in the last year or so, and look forward to seeing what you and the team continue to build over at Pierre. Well, thank you very much, Santosh. It was a pleasure to speak with you. And, and I appreciate the, the, the opportunity to do so. Cheers. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, leave us a five-star review and tell us what you liked. 
and be sure to head over to podcast.dynamo.vc to keep up to date with our latest content or subscribe on the podcast platform of your choice. Until next time.